<laughs> so, th- so at that point in my life, it was about tw- 2011, mm-hmm. and my wife and I, and at that point, three and a half kids were in Arizona, uh, outside of Phoenix, at a, a large um, evangelical megachurch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had just kind of, I was just, I was moving left. I was moving left. I don't know how else to say it. I think most of your listeners will understand that. Yep. I was moving left. And, um, but the environment I was in was not one that was safe to talk about that. Mm. Uh, there were, there was a lot of fear around particular, uh, talking points. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, discussing deconstruction and, and asking questions was just generally frowned upon. Mm. Uh, and eventually for me, I, I realized that I needed to get real with this disconnect between my head and my heart as it related to the question of LGBTQ inclusion. Mm-hmm. My, my heart was in this place of, I feel like we as the church have, have done and are doing a great disservice to the humanity of so many people. But my head was still locked into this place of, but the Bible says, and that disconnect for me, um, I just couldn't sit with it any longer. It had been many, multiple years at that point. And so I decided, okay, I need to just, I need to go into uh, figuring out why my head thinks the way that it does. Um, Where did these theological ideas come from? Where did these beliefs come? Where did these convictions come from? And are they something that I can legitimately um, stand behind. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 48 And we are jumping into a brand new series today that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, So the series is called Glenn's Friends. And I took that name, I got that name, uh, I stole it, I guess you could say, uh, from a professor in college. He was a youth ministry professor. Um, His name is Len Kegler. And uh, we're talking like... 2000, 2004 is when I was in college, so Len Kegler, Youth Ministry, and he would open up his classes with Len's friends. Now, Len's friends were all dead. (laughs) They were like all, like not like people he actually knew. I guess some of them he might have known, but they were typically historical people uh, that made an impact on him, um, whose life he had studied, um, heard about, came across, and inspired him or challenged him to be a better person. So those were Len's friends. So Glenn's friends are not dead. <laughs> They're actually alive, alive and well. And uh, I'm bringing them onto the podcast for this uh, five-part series to talk to us um, about life and God and faith and spirituality. Some of them are pastors. Uh, some of them are authors. Some of them are more well-known. Some of them maybe not as well-known. Uh, but I'm excited to share them with you, and I think it fits in really well uh, with what the What If Project is all about. So, if this is your first time visiting, um, welcome, welcome to the fun. Um, the What If Project basically explores the question of what if there are ways of understanding God and faith and the Bible and spirituality and Jesus and all these different things that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. Uh, so, for instance like hell, right? What if there's a different way to understand hell 
than the typical understanding of if you don't believe in Jesus, that's where you're going. Uh, what if there's different ways of understanding that, right? We're actually going to tackle that one um, in this series with one of my friends. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but today's episode, this is episode number 48, in part one of this series, we're going to be talking to uh, Colby Martin, who wrote a book called uh, Unclobbered, which takes a look at the clobber passages in the Bible that are typically used to shame, outcast, and push away um, LGBTQ people. So we're going to unclobber at least one of those verses, and Colby's going to talk to us about his his story. Um, if you don't know him or you haven't heard of him, um, he pastored a church out in San Diego. Uh, but before that, he was part of another church, and he was fired when he uh, posted something on Facebook that had to do with LGBTQ um, inclusion. So uh, anyway, I'm going to let him tell the story, but it is a really, uh, really inspiring story. I was really encouraged by talking to him, and he really shares his heart, and I'm so excited for you to hear him and to meet him. So uh, we're calling this episode of Colby Martin. Uh, talks to us about getting fired from his church, Leviticus, and becoming an LGBTQ ally. And we will jump into that in just a few moments. Uh, but first, last week, uh, I've been talking about it for a while now, but last week, me and four of my friends went to um, Time Out Youth uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, which is like a uh, organization that supports LGBTQ kids and gives them a safe place to be. So uh, we went there to uh, serve dinner to these kids. And you know how like when you have, like before you go somewhere, you have this image of what the place is going to be like? Well, that's what I had. I had this like image in my head of what this place was going to be. And when I got there, it was like nothing like I thought it was going to be. So first of all, all of the windows are bulletproof glass. Uh, because in case anything, nothing has ever happened there, but in case anything ever does, they want these kids to be and to feel as safe as they possibly can. Uh, there's cameras everywhere, doors are locked. So this is like a really, is like a safe haven for these kids. They've got like a one section, which is almost like a, a living room, a giant living room. They've got couches, they've got TVs with game systems hooked up to it. They have like an arcade uh, game in the back. They've got uh a place for board games. They've got like this little coffee bar. Uh, they've got food. They've got they've got a closet. A lot of these, some of these kids are homeless. They don't even have a place to live, and so they actually have a room that's dedicated to hold their stuff. So if they are out on the street or they don't have a place, uh, they don't have to leave their stuff somewhere. They can have a safe place to lock it up so nobody takes it. Uh, next to that, they have another closet. It's like a toiletries closet where these kids can take their own shampoo, uh, their own soap, uh, all for free. Uh, whatever they need, it's in that closet. Uh, next to that, they have another uh, bathroom that's like a, a freshening up place where they can shower, they can um, take care of themselves and things like that. So a really, uh, just an amazing place. And on top of that, they have like free counseling. They have um, a kitchen that's stocked with food. And then groups like us, uh, we got to come in and actually serve these kids food. Now, our original plan was to cook them dinner, uh, which we were going to do. And we had asked you for money. Uh, to help us buy the food, but we had so much money that we actually got the meal catered for them, and uh, then we are going to use the rest of the money to buy them bus passes because the center said they're really in need of bus passes because some of the kids, the only way they can get there is on the bus, and so they give them bus passes for free, uh, so we're going to buy some bus passes for them 
uh, see if they need anything else to stock up in their closet with their toiletries and stuff like that. Uh, so we're going to make a very uh, generous donation to them. Thank you. Thanks to your generous donation that you gave to us. So uh, thank you so much for that. Um, it was an amazing experience, and uh, I'm probably going to talk more about it later on um, as I continue to process through the experience, but it was amazing. If you want to know more, uh, feel free to reach out to me on the side on Facebook or something like that. Um, I'd love to share more of the details um, with you. Uh, also, uh, this past week, I, I actually got to be on somebody else's podcast, which was interesting for me. Uh, a friend of mine is starting up a new podcast with his friend called God is an Elephant. What the heck is that? Uh, you'll have to go listen to their first episode and it will explain it to you. Uh, but God is an elephant. And uh, I got invited on there to tell my story. Uh, so some never never before shared footage from my story is on that podcast. So if you're interested in that, um, head over there and listen. I got to talk about my faith journey. Um, I got to talk about a little bit about the churches I've pastored and um, how I got to be where I am today. We also touched on some uh, minor Minor touches on some major theological topics. I think we touched on hell. We touched on um, the atonement, original sin, evolution, <laughs> Christian. We talked about a lot of things in a short time, but we're going to be going back and doing it some more. So there'll be like a part two, maybe a part three and a part four uh, sometime down the road. So go check it out. I'll put the links um, in the show notes. Another link in the show, note, uh, show notes I'll put is Patreon. Patreon.com slash what if project is a place where you can go to support the the what if project. So if this has encouraged you, inspired you, challenged you in your faith, uh, Patreon is a place where you can support the show uh, to do what I call help keep the lights on. So uh, kind of pay for help me pay for the um, all the hosting fees for the website, for the blog, for the podcast. That stuff costs money, believe it or not. And so uh, the money that you give every month goes towards paying that. And then whatever I receive over that goes off to the side for some future things that uh, we have planned. So uh, go check that out, patreon.com slash whatifproject. I have nine patrons, and uh, thank you so much. You guys are like part of the heartbeat of this project, and I just thank you for uh, your love and uh, your support and believing in what we're doing here. Special music today is from my friend uh, Before Jane. Before Jane is a one-man band, and this guy is super talented, uh, super passionate, and a super good human being that's making uh, good waves, good waves in the world. So I'll put the links to his stuff in the show notes as well. Uh, the name is Before Jane. And the last thing I'll say before I hit go on this interview is this interview was done with my old microphone. There's a weird scratching noise at some point, so I'm, I tried to get rid of I don't know if I got rid of it completely. I don't think I, I did. You're going to hear it. I'm sorry. Uh, it's not really that great sound quality compared to uh, the newer stuff with the new mic, uh, so I apologize for that, but try to ignore that and uh, enjoy it. Colby has some really good things to share. Um, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. So like I said, this is part one of our new series, uh, Glenn's Friends. And it's episode number 48. Colby Martin talks to us about getting fired from his church, Leviticus, and becoming an LGBTQ ally. Enjoy.
Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you have picked a great day to to drop by because I'm sitting down with my new friend, uh, Colby Martin. Colby is a pastor, author, uh, podcaster, all around a great human being doing some wonderful work in the world. So uh, Colby, welcome to the podcast. Hey Glenn, thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here, man. Absolutely. So uh, Colby, I came across your work um, actually just a few months ago. Uh, a professor of mine at Alliance Theological Seminary told me about your book, um, Unclobber, which we're obviously going to talk about today. But I was taking a, a directed study where the class was essentially just me and the professor working through some pieces of progressive theology. And one of the topics we tackled was LGBTQ inclusion and how to read the clobber passages through a more inclusive and affirming lens. And so I picked up your book, and uh, I've got to say, off the bat, it's been one of the most helpful resources for me, uh, not mm -hmm. only regarding this uh, really important topic, but I think a really good resource for my own journey of deconstruction, reconstruction, and becoming what I hope is a better reader of the Bible. So uh, mm -hmm. thank you for pouring so much into this book. Man, that mean, uh, <laughs> thank you. That means the world. Um, you know, when you, when you set out in life to... to to put a thing together, to create a thing, to, to use your time and energy and experience and try and just create this piece to offer the world, you really do not have any idea what the world will then do with that thing. Mm. So, so in the, in the, in the, in the research and the writing and the creation of, uh, of this book, it was, you know, a big part for me was, brother enjoy the journey like cause enjoy the writing of this thing because this is where the gift is this is the thing you love doing hmm. and uh and then if anything after that if anybody reads this and and finds any value in it that's just that's just gravy yeah uh, that's just that's just frosting on a good cake and i don't know why i immediately mixed two food metaphors which probably <laughs> go together but uh it so, works <laughs> thank you so to hear you say that it was um uh, to, at all helpful let alone uh, the words that you actually did say, it just means the world to me. It's just, it's what a, what a gift to know that anything I have put into the world has been of use and value. So that's my long winded way of saying thank you. Oh, well, you're, you're very welcome. And uh, I think for me too, like it, I've been wrestling with this stuff for like a long time and thinking a lot about it, but the book really helped me put words onto thoughts and feelings that I couldn't really quite express. Mm. And it made, I think some deeper um, research, much more uh, like within reach for me. So I think that was really, really important. And uh, I think, I think a lot of people too, like, you know, cause sometimes you read some theology books and you read about these topics and you know, the words and the ideas are so deep. Um, it's hard to grasp them, but when you can open yeah. up a book like yours and it's not a very long book and it's an easy read, you crack jokes throughout it. Uh, you know, you weave your own story in there and it just makes it all the more accessible and real. So that's huge. <laughs> and I appreciate you just saying crack jokes as opposed <laughs> to crack dad jokes. I'm, I'm often uh, much maligned by those in my life who want to insist that I have dad jokes. And I say, yeah, I think that is offensive. Let's just drop the dad part. These are just good jokes. Um, but I don't, I don't win many of those, uh, <laughs> many of those arguments. So, you know, yeah, um, making it accessible. That was really, that was really important to me. Yeah, because this stuff, uh, yeah, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. It's easy to 
um, to go into a particular subject like this uh, for anybody and, and have a, a degree of earnestness and sincerity. Like, uh, yeah, I really do want to really do want to uncover kind of what's going on here because I can see the implications for this are massive. Um, and it can get so easy to get lost mm-hmm. real early and get bogged down in ancient languages and cultural context and just all that stuff. So th- those resources are out there. There are books that are, are incredibly far more in-depth. Um, you know, but my, my goal here wasn't to make the 12-hour Kim Burns documentary. <laughs> right. <laughs> 42 minute Netflix uh, sit down on one watching and feel like, Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Mm. So yeah, that, that, was a, that was a big goal. For me. Yeah. And that you definitely did. So right. uh, excellent. So Great. the book is called uh, unclobber rethinking our misuse of the Bible on homosexuality. And like we said in the book, not only share your own uh, very personal story of becoming a supporter of the LGBTQ community, but you also discuss in detail how the clobber passages um, that the church uses um, have really kind of very little to say on the issue as we know it in uh, 2019. And so today what I want to do is I just want to ask you uh, to walk us through one of the more popular clobber passages um, and just show us that there's a whole lot more going on beneath the many layers of a biblical text than we might see on the surface. But before we go there, I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of your story, like in particular, um, how did you come to a place where you felt the need to rethink the way uh, the Bible has traditionally been used um, concerning homosexuality? And then, you know, what happened as a result of that decision? Well, how did your, what kind of ripple effects did that have in your life? Yeah, sure. So I grew up uh, in a conservative fundamental Baptist environment. Hmm. Um, my father is a I don't know, fourth, fifth generation Baptist. Uh, and so uh, in, the, in the Pacific Northwest, in the state of Oregon, we were in church every Sunday, oftentimes multiple times a week, uh, as often happens in those environments. Hmm. Um, and, so, and so growing up, that was the, the, the framework in which uh, I developed any sort of religiosity or spirituality, uh, very conservative. Hmm. Um, and then even after my parents divorced and we relocated to a different church because the Baptist world at that time didn't know how to handle divorce family very well. Mm-hmm. And so we moved on to uh, just kind of a generic uh, evangelical church. And that was where I was at for, for middle school and throughout high school. And when I had an experience going into the senior year of my high school um, that radically transformed my life, where I really had this divine encounter with um, the transcendent where I really had this moment of, Oh, I want my life to be about uh, discovering and uncovering who God is specifically the God is revealed through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I decided I wanted to give my life to the work of ministry. And uh, so I, I abandoned my plans I had for college to study graphic design and headed off into a, uh, I went back to the Baptist world. <laughs> That's all I knew. That's all so to knew. A, uh, yeah. To a, to a Baptist uh, liberal arts college in Salem, Oregon, and got my bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I, I, I mean, I've always been a sort of studious, um, intellectual person who, who really values um, reading and, and writing and um, chasing after what I consider to be uh, truth. That's, that's always been a part of my DNA. So in, in 
in college and getting to do that in a, in a Bible world, uh, I really excelled in that, for lack of a better word. Um, mm. I became known, at least in my little circles, for knowing the Bible really well, or at least pretending. I'm, an, I'm a three on the Enneagram, if your listeners uh, know <laughs> what that is at all. And so I'm really good at projecting the image of having all the right answers and being awesome. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was kind of me coming out of college mm. and going into the ministry was someone who really felt like I had a, 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 as, as good a grasp as a 23-year-old kid could on the Bible. I felt like I had it and I had the answers and uh, I knew what the Bible said and I, I knew how to respond to questions. Uh, and so I had a pretty good grasp on things or so I thought. And then I found myself in a, uh, a, a church of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination mm-hmm. uh, in Salem doing worship ministry. I'd picked up a guitar in college and learned how to to lead people in worship. And so I was doing that. And the the moment things really shifted for me as it relates to the topic of LGBTQ inclusion Hmm. um, was the moment that I was studying to become licensed, to be like an officially licensed pastor in the denomination. I went through uh, that process with them too. Oh, yeah, it's a you know you got to get that rubber stamp, man. You ain't a pastor until some <laughs> higher white old dude tells you you are. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm studying for uh, for my interview, uh, more or less. I'm part of it involved, kind of reviewing the policies and procedures of the the church and the denomination. And so I'm, I'm reading through on my lunch break, studying up, and I and I get to this line in this document that essentially says that, you know, our church does not permit um, practicing homosexuals from being members in our church or from serving in leadership roles in our church. Mm. And at the time I remember thinking, um, I wonder what practicing means. (laughs) (laughs) What what, what technically qualifies practicing? (laughs) I wonder like, Hand holding if if a, if a if a guy holds hands with another guy does that count or 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 or, or if a girl looks longingly at another girl like yeah, where too long of a look or yeah like, yeah yeah <laughs> like where do we establish what practicing is hmm. uh, and and what if someone's like really good at it are they out of the practicing stage like what if they've mastered their homosexuality but does that count <laughs> uh, no it's just practicing okay all right it was like that old uh, uh, um, I forget the coach's name but um, the NBA coach. No, no, it's Alan Iverson. Is it practice? We're talking about practice. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. So I got over that, but then I'm like, wait a minute. So my my denomination has this very clear boundary hmm. for people who um, identify as LGBTQ, uh, or at least however they would however they would describe. Um, I don't know, acting on that or. Sure. God, isn't this the worst? Living the lifestyle, just the worst phrase ever. Um, I remember being struck by this uh, and having this real cognitive dissonant moment. And it wasn't because theologically I was uh, open to the idea of gay people being Christian. Because at that time, I was firmly rooted in this, uh, this theological approach, which was very traditional as it relates to faith and sexuality, which is that uh, marriage exists only for one man and one woman, mm-hmm. uh, and that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage uh, was considered sinful. And so anybody who 
uh, thought they were gay or thought they were lesbian or thought they were transgender. Um, they were either mistaken and needed to be corrected or broken and needed to be healed. Um, or even at that time, I don't even know if I would have had the language for it, but you know, commonly now it's okay. That's who you are, but you have to remain celibate. Um, none of that was at play for me in that moment. Uh, I would have, I would have wholeheartedly signed off on a document that said homosexuality is not God's design uh, and, and you know is not blessed by the divine. But there was this 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 firm um, keeping uh, at arm's length outside of the what it means to be a member of the church or or to be a lead volunteer. And as, as though the church was saying, you can, like, we want you to come and we want you to give money and maybe serve as ushers. Um, <laughs> but there are, you know, you got to stay outside in the court of Gentiles sort mm -hmm. of thing. Like you can't get close to the Holy of Holies. And that was a problem for me. That was a problem for me um, to create these hard and fast boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so that, that unsettled for me, that kind of pulled out a Jenga piece near the bottom that made the structure suddenly kind of wobbly. Mm. And I remember finishing my licensing process and getting licensed um, really just by the skin of my teeth, um, which, wait a minute, what, why is that a saying? Do we have mm. skin on our teeth? Right. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> All right. I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to figure that one out later. Uh, that's another podcast episode. That's got to be another, yeah, someone out there has probably studied that. I'm sure. Um, but I just barely got in and, and, but that really did sort of unlock this, um, this cavern for me, mm -hmm. uh, of, of exploration and what, and what you should know about me, Glenn, is that one of the things that really seems to matter in my life, and I'm sure it matters to most people, maybe all people, but I just know that for me, it's a defining, um, thing in my life is that if I don't feel like my insides match my outsides, if I don't feel like my like I'm living with integrity, which is to say being aligned, integrated. Um, if there's a, a mismatch between what I think and I feel and what my actions are, that's a huge red flag that something is not right for me. Yeah. Like I have to, I have to figure out how to sync those things up. Mm. And so, um, and so that was a yeah, that was a moment of real dissonance for me. Mm. Uh, but then fast forward a couple of years, and I you know, followed some other sort of rabbits down other trails where I realized that there was other, there have been other ways throughout the last 2000 years that people have interacted with some of the topics of Christianity. I had a very narrow view of Baptistic, very narrow conservative hmm. things. Uh, and over the next couple of years, I began to just read and listen to and be ex, uh, exposed to other ways to think about things. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm taking a really long time. I'll get to no, the point. No, that's good. Yeah. 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 And, and so I just sort of, as I describe it now, I kind of began this journey um, on the, you know, if there's a spectrum of super fundamentalist on one end and just hyper liberal, open progressive on the other end, I just kind of began this journey towards the left, kind of towards a more centrist view of things um, and, and kind of began what I think now many people say a process of deconstruction, yeah. which is really asking honest questions about, wait, what do I believe? And why do I believe that? And, and how does that make sense? And so a and number of dominoes began to, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think for me, I'm finding myself a lot in your story just as you're talking, because I grew up in a reformed church. Uh, so okay. yeah. similar kind of mentality as the yeah. Southern Baptist type idea. But I also went to, I went to Nyack College Alliance Theological Seminary. They're part of the you know Christian Missionary Alliance. 
and I went through that same oh, nice. thing. Yeah, I went through that same licensing, uh, you know, oh, procedure that fun. you did. And I remember for me, like the like you talk about that feeling of you know your kind of the way you're living versus what's going on in your heart being like out of alignment. Mm-hmm. For me, when I was pastor, I was pastoring a Reformed church. It was an old Dutch Reformed church, and it was very small. And I'll never forget. I was, you know, I was very conservative in my thoughts about homosexuality and stuff. But the moment that it this kind of lid came off from me, I was getting ready to serve my first communion at the church. And an elder came up to me and he said, you know, we're going to be serving communion soon. This is the Lord's Supper. You know, what are you going to do if a gay couple comes into the church? Wow. And I was like, I don't know. I guess I give them something to eat like Jesus would. You know, I mean, everybody's welcome. And he looked at me and he said, no. He said, everybody's not welcome at the table. He said, the gay people would have to stop being gay and repent of their lifestyle. And my theology, like, and that's kind of like where I was. But when I heard the word spoken, I was like, ew, that's not that is right. You know, and I remember feeling this, again, yeah. this out of alignment feeling in my heart that like, there's got to be, there's got to be something else going on here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm fighting myself a lot in your story as you're talking. Yeah. So, yeah, so keep going. Yeah, well, I mean, that just makes me think about how much my own tradition and possibly yours as well insisted to us to not trust our heart. Yeah. To not trust our feelings, to mm-hmm. not trust our emotional state. You know, that I think it's, there's a one proverb um, Maybe it's a psalm, but I think it's a proverb. And anytime you build a life around a proverb, I think you're on you're on rocky water because <laughs> uh, these are just sort of general things about the world. Anyways, that, like one verse that says like the heart is wicked and should not be trusted or something. Like okay, in some instances that probably makes a lot of sense. Right. But also, what are we doing if we are if we are disconnecting ourselves from our entire emotional yeah. uh, inner world? Right. Like, that is a dangerous, dangerous game to play. Mm. And, and, and so to, for you and I to talk about these moments of having this sort of inner screeching of the, of the record player, like we need to pay attention to that. Like that matters. That's right. That matters. I, I was just, you know, I'm just finishing up my, my second book here and I was finishing my chapter on, I talk about Jesus and when he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, some say some other dead prop. Basically, we, basically people think you're a dead prophet. He's come yeah. back to life. Uh, and then Jesus turns to them and says, well, what about you? Like, what do you guys think about me? Mm. Uh, and, and in one of the gospels, um, uh, Peter responds with, uh, you are the Christ. Mm. Uh, and, and Jesus responds. And I just think it's such a, beautiful, profound response. Jesus responds by saying, blessed are you uh, because no one has revealed this to you, uh, but my father who's in heaven has revealed it to you, which is another way of saying you came about this insight, this wisdom, like on your own, like from within, like something inside of you got unlocked to, to suggest to you that maybe Jesus is the Christ. Mm. And, and, and Jesus affirms that this sort of wisdom from within. Mm. And yet so much of our tradition um, told us to not trust the wisdom from within. Right. You know, we're only supposed to, you know, I don't know, read ancient words from written by dead guys on, on papyrus. Like, yeah. and that's the only wisdom that we're supposed to receive. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't get the sense that was 
that that should be how we operate in the world. Yeah. And then uh, that idea that like, if you can't, if you can't accept it, well, then your faith isn't strong enough. You know, there's something wrong with you. You, know, you need yeah. to go back to the drawing board and read some more, pray some more or research. Yeah. More. It's, yeah. That's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, 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 like forcing someone to a, to a place of certainty is the absolute opposite of faith. Yeah. Uh, faith, faith is the openness to where the light is. Faith mm-hmm. is the openness to um, where spirit might want to take you. Mm-hmm. Locking something down into a, a place of certainty. You're going in the wrong direction there. Yeah. You're going in the wrong direction. That's right. Yeah. So you start okay. asking questions. Yes, I start asking questions, yeah. uh, Glenn, and I and I, I start moving away from many of the conservative evangelical uh, positions and ideas that I, I cherished and upheld and defended and articulated mm-hmm. and uh, apologeticized uh, for so many years. Um, Got licensed in. Yep. <laughs> oh man, brother, sign me up. I was. There. <laughs> teach the class yeah i flew to alaska one summer to teach a course on pre-millennial eschatology had my my charts and my (laughs) and my outlines and uh oh bless me okay (laughs) Um, bless your soul (laughs) so so at that point in my life it was about 2011 Mm -hmm. and my wife and i at that point three and a half kids were in arizona uh outside of phoenix at a a large um, evangelical megachurch and, you know, I had just kind of, I was just, I was moving left. I was moving left. I don't know how else to say it. I think most of your listeners will understand that. Yeah. I was moving left. And, um, but the environment I was in was not one that was safe to talk about that. Mm. Uh, there were, there was a lot of fear around particular, uh, talking points. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, discussing deconstruction and, and asking questions was just generally frowned upon. Mm. Uh, and eventually for me, I, I realized that I needed to get real with this disconnect between my head and my heart as it related to the question of LGBTQ inclusion. Hmm. My, my heart was in this place of, I feel like we as the church have, have done and are doing a great disservice to the humanity of so many people. But my head was still locked into this place of, but the Bible says. Right. And that disconnect for me, um, I just couldn't sit with it any longer. It had been many, multiple years at that point. And so I decided, okay, I need to just, I need to go into uh, figuring out why my head thinks the way that it does. Um, where did these theological ideas come from? Where did these beliefs come? Where did these convictions come from? Mm. And are they something that I can legitimately um, stand behind? Yeah. Because if so, then I need to drag my heart into this. Like I need to, I need to to, to get myself into alignment um, because I can't keep living like this. Hmm. Um, and so, I, so I went into it open to whatever sort of I don't want to say the data or the evidence showed uh, because I don't think it's that lab coat. Um, you know, I just think there's a lot more to it. But, but the point is, math. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's really it's not math. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I just went into it saying, I need to figure this out. I need to figure, I need to study the Bible. I need to study how the church got here. I need to study how I get, got here. Um, because honestly, like many people, there just really wasn't a lot of care or intention put into it for me. There really wasn't. There was a, oh, 
generally what it means to be a Christian is to be against homosexuality. Right. Generally speaking, there's a couple verses that I'm aware of in the Bible where there seem to be an anti-gay sentiment. So I guess God is anti-gay, therefore I should be as well. Right. Like it was, it was more or less the extent of it. And so when I began to really look into the matter, uh, like many people, I was floored, just floored by how little the Bible addresses this mm. issue. Yeah. I mean, there are something like 66,000 verses in the Bible <laughs> um, and six, you could argue seven, but I think you're on shaky ground. Six, six verses, um, 0.00001% of the Bible uh, at all gives any sort of uh, head nod to the question of same-sex attraction, same-sex behavior. Yeah, I mean, that is so minuscule. And look, I'm not saying that that settles the case at all. Sure. Um, like, you take any document and there could be one sentence in the document that is so clear and so powerful that you don't need to have the thing peppered everywhere else. Like, mm -hmm. one could be enough. Um, but I also think that the degree to which a thing is mentioned in something like the Bible should come into consideration. I would think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> like you probably heard it said, like what the number, the most often repeated command in the Bible is to not be afraid. Do not, right. fear. Yep. not be afraid. Okay. Well, I think that that matters. That's a theme that clearly shows up in a lot of places for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. So that, that shouldn't matter. I think. Um, so when something is hardly referenced at all, if nothing else, if nothing else, if we, if we hold on to some conviction that the God of the universe is in some way authority, authorly, something like that, <laughs> in, some, in some ways responsible from an authorship level yeah. uh, of the Bible. Um, if this is a, is something that registers on God's uh, list of things that are, are really important one would think it would show up more often and then with more clarity. So that was the second thing is I realized not only does this uh, subject not show up very much, but when it does and you look just one layer deep, not to mention two, three, four, five layers deep, just one layer deep, you're like, damn, this is not yeah. clear. This is not as clear as I've been led to believe. Yeah. And that's what's frustrating, Glenn, is many people just do a quick Google search. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And they'll get one quick response that, you know, probably from like gateway, biblegateway.com. Yep, and it takes them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And they read it and they're like, oh, no, that's, su that's super clear. Like, I don't know what people have. What are we arguing about? Like, here? duh. Yeah. I wonder like, if anybody knows this verse is there. Yeah. Like, oh my God, that was so annoying, Glenn. <laughs> the number of people that just sent me that link to that <laughs> verse is like, you must have missed this one. I wonder if Colby has seen this verse. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's there. <laughs> I got to change everything now. How did I miss it? Um, so, I, so I began to study, is my point. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I spent some time really trying to figure out how to align my head and my heart um, because they were clearly in disagreement with one another. And, and what I found is that, uh, by and large, the Christian tradition has um, grossly mis- understood hmm. and or mistranslated and definitely misused uh, these six passages, which I came across the term clobber passage a number of years ago yep. uh, as sort of a, a quick catchphrase to, um, to name 
the verses in the Bible that have been historically used to justify discrimination against mm. LGBTQ people, yep. uh, and, and in many ways, you know, clobber them with it. Like mm. this is like, no, you don't get to be. Um, you can't take communion here. <laughs> right. Here's the verse. Here's like, the verse that says it. We'll, we'll smack it. We'll smack you with it. So, uh, so yeah. So in, in early 2011, I want to say, I kind of, I, I don't know that it was a moment exactly. It was more like just a series of moments. It's always uh, like that. It's a process. Right? Yeah, it's a process. Yeah. And and at some point, I just realized, oh, I, I think differently about this now. Mm. Wow. I, I think. I think the things that, that held me back uh, from being out of alignment don't hold me back anymore. Like the things that, that anchored me into this old theological position have been loosed. Mm. Uh, and so my head and my heart kind of found themselves in alignment where um, the Bible no longer for me was a source of justification for some position that articulated that God is against homosexuality or that God would be against two people of the same gender enjoying a loving mutual relationship. Mm. Uh, and so I, but of course I had to keep it inside. So it was just basically at that point, it's just my wife and I, uh, who were kind of going on similar parallel journeys. We were the only people that we basically opened up to about this, mm. which is awesome because sometimes that's not the case with our oh, lives. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right? I've heard horror stories of people who come to these, conclusions they start their own deconstruction and their spouse is like what in the world are you doing yeah and then there's like that causes marriage problems from there Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah my wife and i reflect often how how lucky we are that we have grown like we are we're as as all people are like we are radically different Mm. than when we got married 15 years ago at 20 and 21 like who who's anybody at 20 years old like you're not even close to you think you know everything but so we're just so lucky that as we've uh, continued to grow and evolve and mature that we've gone on uh, parallel paths Uh, Mm. so fortunately we like each other a lot more today than we did 15 even 15 years ago there you go um so I, I had this new conviction, Glenn, at that point in my life, um, which I call, or many people call open and affirming, which is mm. basically saying that, uh, that we affirm the full humanity of people who identify lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and so on. Uh, and that um, we think there is nothing uh, from a God perspective that would prevent two people of the same gender being in a relationship and, or getting married. And so um, it all came to a head for me. Again, I was at this large conservative church. It all came to a head for me in, uh, in September of 2011 when uh, President Obama signed the repeal for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which mm. was the ban against LGBTQ people serving in the military. And I posted on my Facebook that night um, a link to an article announcing the repeal. And I just wrote six words. I'm glad this day finally came which for me at that time was uh, really just a statement about the end of what I saw as discrimination. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily intended to be any sort of statement outing myself as sure. an affirming um, pastor. It wasn't my intent to create a theological discussion. Um, but nonetheless, that's what happened. I woke up the next morning to a, a long stream of concerned comments uh, on my page from people in my church and in my community. Um, that were freaking out over a pastor um, being pro-gay agenda, hmm. which I'll just be honest, they've never sent me a packet. I've never gotten the official um, 
memo for what the gay agenda is. I keep, wait, <laughs> I keep waiting. I feel like I've earned my, my, my stripes at this point, but no one has sent me the, the damn gay agenda, Glenn. Right. So if anyone out there has it, I, Please I, would, send like, it to us. I would like to see <laughs> that for which I'm fighting for. Uh, but anyway, that, that, um, that led to an emergency board meeting a couple of days later uh, in which I was essentially forced to sit with a group of pastors and men elders and give an account for my theology and answer for my uh, opinion on the Bible and homosexuality. So at that point I came out of the theological closet and I told the men in that room um, where I, where I, what I thought about this topic. And uh, yeah. And then three days later they fired me um, mm. on the spot. So my five years there of helping to, build this church and, and build a family and build a home, my wife, uh, all of that uh, just kind of got taken away in an instant, mm. um, uh, which was devastating. But of course, now I look back and I say that that was really one of the biggest gifts I've ever received in my life. Never feels like that in the moment, but no, oh, yeah, of course yeah. not. It was, it yeah. was, it was horrible. Yeah. Everything we had created was just pulled out from under us. It was, mm. it was dreadfully painful. Uh, to have people that I'd built what I thought were, were deep personal relationships now decide, um, oh, because you have this particular idea in your mind, uh, um, and, and mind you, I wasn't teaching it. I wasn't arguing for it. I wasn't sure. trying to convince people. It just, it was in my mind. Just it there. was just this yeah. idea. It was just the conviction that, that two neurons would fire from one another somewhere in the pathway of my brain. Um, but that is such a threat. It is such a threat to those um, to, to those who have created their faith identity around a commitment to this idea mm. that what God cares about most is what we believe. And somewhere along the way, we lost the point of the story, which is they will know you are my followers, that you love one another. We, we lost the message and it got distorted into God cares most what you think, yeah. um, that what you believe matters most. And so when you build your world around that conviction and, and believe that you're standing with God, like how God actually feels about you or what God's opinion of you is or what God's plan for your life or your eternity is, hinges upon what you think, what you believe, having the right answers. When that is your conviction, then of course you're going to have massive walls built around those ideas and yeah. you're going to keep questions out. You're going to keep uh, other ideas out because you're protecting yourself. This is you're in self-preservation mode of my very standing with God is at stake here. So I can't let you and your ideas uh, um, anywhere near me because it threatens my very standing with God. Mm. So really I look back at, on those men and I'm like, they were just following out their convictions with as much integrity as I was. Sure. Uh, they were committed to particular ideas and they were doing it the best they could. So I don't, it's hard for me to really fault them for mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, now I just want to say, like I said a few minutes ago, the number one thing in the Bible is do not be afraid. And you guys are all acting from a place of fear right now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I got fired from that and that uh, huge gift to my wife and I, um, even though it's painful at the time, because then we could, then we could just sort of pursue a life where, we didn't have to hide anymore. We didn't have yeah. to keep our, our ideas and our convictions and our, our questions inside. Uh, and so we could finally integrate our internal world with our external world. 
more um, freedom to dream. And that led me, you know, I would think. oh, so much right? more freedom to dream. Yeah. And that was, you know, I was able to write this book because I was out from under that. Yeah. Um, I was able to, to, to hone in on this research and to fine tune it and to make it more accessible uh, and then to publish it because mm-hmm. there was no organization over me that was, that was oppressing me or keeping me silent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now here I am, uh, my wife and I, we started a church here in San Diego five years ago called Sojourn Grace mm-hmm. Collective. Uh, we actually celebrate our, our five-year anniversary this Sunday. Although oh, wow. when your listeners hear this, they will be months past this. Yes. <laughs> anyway, back in March, everybody, we celebrated. Yes. Uh, and it's this beautiful, funky, diverse, um, open and affirming Christian, progressive Christian church. And uh, yeah, in many ways, we're having the time of our lives. So. That's awesome. If we were lived in San Diego, we would definitely be there. Yeah, come on out, man. Whenever, whenever you want. It's a great place to live. That's awesome. Yeah, if we ever, if we're ever in the area, we're definitely gonna stop by. I love it. Yeah. So uh, let's real quick. And I'll let you serve communion, Glenn, and you can oh. serve it to everybody, and it'll be glorious. And so I'm gonna Facebook Live it and tag a few people in it. Oh, uh, that would be. <laughs> oh man, it's so funny. Yeah, I mean the the stories. Um, and I'll, sometime we'll have to chat, maybe off the air, because I have so many stories to share with you. Mm. Um, just that you're. Your own story just brought up in my mind just a lot of different memories. But uh, yeah, uh, I, again, you know, I know I said it at the opening, but thank you because you know, just hearing your story and people such as yourself who have really paved a way for people like myself to mm. follow down this path because um, it's people like, like you with this topic and there's others as well. But, you know, I think people like Rob Bell with the whole hell topic and yeah. you know, just these different brave people who have stood up and said, nah, I think there's a different way to think about this stuff. And I've publicly said that has made it much easier for people like myself to say, I think they're right. And I'm going to follow down that, that road and kind of see where it goes. So um, I know a lot of people would feel the same way. So again, not to overthink you, but thank you. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, let's talk quick about, and I'm not quick, but you know, I want to, I don't want to uh, keep you too long. Cause I know you got things to do as well, but I want to talk to you about, um, one of the clobber passages, and in particular, the one in, two in Leviticus about the word abomination. Mm-hmm. Um, two of the more popular Old Testament passages for our listeners that people typically go to against homosexuality is Leviticus 18.22 and then 20.13. And I'll just read them uh, really quick. 18.22 says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is an abomination. And then the next one in 20.13 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Uh, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And just to give you a little bit more insight to my story, because I think some of our, our listeners will probably share a similar experience. Uh, growing up, I went to a Christian school, uh, and I was told that homosexuality and everyone that falls within the context of LGBTQ or whatever the phrase was back then um, is an abomination. Uh, they are an abomination. Their lifestyle, quote unquote, is yeah. an abomination. And since Leviticus says they're to be put to death, what that really means in our context is there is a special place in hell reserved for those people. And that's that's a horrible thought process. And wow. you know, and I'm sad to say that I, mean, I used a to believe special that. place reserved in hell. Like, yeah, like that's like just, they show up and they get a, a green ticket. Everybody else gets blue. You get exactly. a green ticket. You go over here. It's a little be, hotter over there. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh, you know, that's the thing. It's like, well, what do you do with that put to death, you know, phrase? And that must be what it means is there's a special place in, in hell. And 
again, I'm sad to say, like, I used to believe that because that's really all I knew. You know, that's what mm-hmm. I was fed in Christian middle school, mm-hmm. high school, Sunday school, uh, Bible college touched on that kind of thing. And that's really all I knew. So once I did my research, you know, similar to what you talked about, and I took the lid off of this and jumped in a little bit. And more importantly than that, had some real life experiences with LGBTQ people. Yep. Um, I know yep. and love very deeply. Like I've been working for Apple in an Apple store for nine years. And uh, it's a very diverse group of people. Um, yeah. Lots of different kinds of people. And I've developed some really deep friendships with um, gay people, lesbians, transgender, and I love them. And once I started to have those relationships, like my belief system around this topic was underwent some major reworking like you talked about. So yeah. when I have this conversation though with people, especially on Facebook or still on the other side or they're maybe on the fence, um, these Leviticus verses are the o- always the ones that come up. And uh, we alluded to this before, but I was talking to somebody on Facebook a few weeks ago and I posted something about you know LGBTQ inclusion and all the person wrote was read Leviticus 2013. <laughs> again, like as if I didn't know that it existed. So I was wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about uh, what did you discover concerning these passages and maybe how to handle them um, in a, in a you know, scholarly way in a conversation with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got, um, I got three things that, uh, three, three ways to respond to this, okay. obviously, because I'm a preacher. So yes, give me three points. <laughs> uh, and, and they're, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of, uh, like concentric circles. So the first one is going to be kind of farther out and then we're going to kind of move in a little bit. Hmm. So on, on the far out, and this might not resonate with some of your listeners. Um, but for those for whom will get it, it will, it will, I think, it will be helpful. Okay. Uh, but, I, but I, but I, my point is I recognize that um, for some people who hold, who might hold particular convictions or, or commitments to the Bible and what it is, what I'm about to say is going to sound very um, annoying, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'll push past that. So the first thing I want to say is this is, is do we like here in the 21st century, um, do we feel like, the, the height of human morality uh, and insight into human morality peaked 3,500 years ago. Mm. Like, do, do we think that more than three millennia ago, we had reached a, 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 a level of insight in human civilization where, whereby we could have the best sense of what morality is and how people should live. Hmm. I like Glenn. I don't think so. <laughs> I think I think one thousand years ago, you go to the Dark Ages. I mean, we call them Dark Ages for a reason. Like it was a, a particularly heinous period of, of life. Um, so we'll go back even farther, three thousand years ago. I don't. I don't think we should uh, lock ourselves into a corner where we decide that um, documents from 3,000 years ago uh, represent sort of the height of human morality mm-hmm. and should therefore dictate uh, and, and give us um, direction on how to conduct ourselves today. Like so we just got to get back to that. If we could just get back to those days. Even, yeah. maybe not even necessarily get back to, but just say um, that's the best we've got. Mm. 
that's the best we've got um, nice. to, to give it to tell us how to live. And so, uh, so let's not look any 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 more into it. Um, and, and I and I realize that for some people that's going to be like, well, hold on a second, because if the Bible was inspired by God and other perhaps I words that I don't necessarily uh, hold commitments to anymore, <laughs> um, but if the Bible's inerrant or inspired, uh, then then these are timeless truths. And so if it was true back then, then it's true always. And, and I just want to say that, that that level of argument doesn't hold up. Like you can't mm-hmm. be intellectually consistent with that across the board. Yeah. Um, you, you, in your own life, you, you have made allowances and allotments for, um, for some 3000 year old words to hold less meaning and less truth than others. Mm. Uh, and so there's no way to be consistent with that. So I think we just need to be honest and say, um, to the extent that something gives us insight into what morality looks like, and it's 3,500 years old, we should give ourselves the freedom to say, maybe that's worth another look. Mm. Maybe killing kids because they disobey their parents should not for us be the height of human morality. Yeah, should maybe, not be. maybe we've progressed a little. Maybe we've progressed <laughs> a little since then. Yeah. And, and that's not even to say if, a, if someone holds to the idea that, that these verses were um, divinely written by God through human authors. It's not even to say that, that um, we're accusing uh, God of being wrong. I think what you could say is... Um, you can fully hold space for God. Um, Greg Boyd talks about this, accommodating. You can totally hold space for God accommodating to where humans are at in any particular given context. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's like how, um, it's like how math uh, growing up, you know, you hit first grade and you're, you know, your, your first grade teacher tells you, you can't subtract a larger number from a smaller number. Mm. Um, and you learn these basic principles about math, about addition and subtraction. And once you get to zero, like that's it. So Mm. you can't do five minus six, it just doesn't work. Uh, so, but then you get to third grade or fourth grade. Um, and suddenly your teacher starts talking about, uh, negative numbers and your little mind just gets blown and you're like, wait a minute, you're telling me you can go backwards past zero? I've been living and, a lie. <laughs> yeah, and that's one, that's one interpretation is that, yeah. is that your first grade teacher lied to you yeah. and that, or that your first grade teacher was wrong. Um, but that's only one mm. possible explanation for it. Another possible explanation is for, well, no, your teacher was accommodating to what your little mind could handle in that given moment. Right. And then you get to middle school and you start taking algebra and you learn about imaginary numbers. And you're like, what in the, what is going on? Here? Imaginary numbers? Um, and again, one interpretation is your previous teachers were wrong or lying to you. Hmm. So one person could say to me, well, so you're saying that God was lying to humans when God said this about morality, but then wouldn't say that today? Well, no, that's one potential explanation. But there are others, which is that God was accommodating to where humans were at in their given context and culture. Uh, and maybe it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to drop into the consciousness of humans 3,500 years ago, statements about how to manage carbon dioxide in the atmosphere so mm-hmm. that our climates are more, you know, <laughs> appropriate. Maybe it wouldn't have made sense for, for some ancient Levitical priest to write about um, proper ethics on how to handle uh, stem cell research. Like, mm-hmm. 
let's just stop looking at these ancient letters to give us the height of human morality. So anyway, that's the first, like, the, the first thing I want to say as we go into this is we need to give ourselves permission to say, let's not take our code of ethics and our sense of morality um, from people 3,000 plus years ago as, as being the height of morality. Mm. Um, anyway, so that's we're the first li- thing. We're living in a much different context. Well, yeah. The fact that, I mean, that Leviticus was written to this nation coming out of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just totally different. Totally different. Totally different. So that kind of moves into the second thing I want to say, um, which is kind of just about the bigger uh, context of the the verse in the book. And like you said, Leviticus was written for a very particular audience for a very particular reason. Uh, Some people would even argue it was a book written only for those in the tribe of Levi. So only for those um, in the priestly tribe. Um, So there are some Jewish scholars that would argue that anything written in there doesn't really apply or, or, mean much to people outside of the tribe of Levi. But even if you wanted to argue that it applied for all of Israel, yeah, it was it was written to a particular people group for a particular uh, time. And that needs to matter. My only point is that needs to matter in how we approach this. Sure. And how we approach any passage from the Bible, it needs to it needs to matter the context, who wrote it, why they wrote it, what was going on. Um, because it just it wasn't written for us. So we can't just do a straight one-to-one ratio of um, this is what the word says in English, and therefore this is how we should live it out. <laughs> we just we cannot do that and, it, and have any sort of credibility um, left. So, sure. so anyway, so uh, yeah, so Leviticus, this book of sort of priestly codes and, and rules and re- regulations on how people should conduct themselves as it relates to God, how people should conduct themselves as it relates to each other. Uh, and, and so these two clobber passages sit within a couple uh, larger passages, especially Leviticus 18, a larger passage that most of it has to do with um, like incestual relations <laughs> and kind of don't sleep with your stepmom, don't sleep with your sister. Uh, like this is how you should conduct yourselves in that way. And so this verse kind of shows up in that context, which I'll get to in the third thing I want to say. But, but what I want to say in this moment is a lot of these um, prohibitions, for lack of a better word, uh, that, that come up in Leviticus, um, they are given a particular label. They're given a particular bucket, hmm. categorical bucket, that the author of Leviticus puts them in. And, and the bucket is called, um, in our English uh, language, what we've translated it, as abomination. Hmm. And you referenced this earlier. Yeah. So a lot of these... Um, actions or behaviors uh, or, or ways of being in the world get thrown into this bucket of abomination. Now, when you and I come across the word abomination in our English Bibles uh, or in any other context, the word abomination, uh, it has a very clear meaning. Hmm. Uh, abomination does. It means vile. It means gross. It means uh, subhuman. Like this is kind of what it means to, for something to be an abomination. Yeah. So it makes all the sense in the world to read about a man lying with a man uh, and, and calling that an abomination. And it just makes all the sense to be like, well, man plus man equals vile, equals right. gross. That's what it says. Uh, equals, yeah. equals subhuman. Like yeah. what's, what's there to argue? It is gross. It is vile. It is subhuman. Um, but what I try to do in the book is I try to sh- show how the English word abomination 
is really a, a gross misunderstanding of the Hebrew term mm. in, in all of the instances. And the Hebrew term is uh, tova, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right because it's by and large a dead Sounds language. Good to me. Yeah. It, you know, in fact, at one time, Glenn, somebody um, <laughs> wrote this rather scathing review of my scholarship, uh, and one of their points of critique was that I mispronounced the word tova. And so that was them evidence that I didn't know what I was talking Colby, about. Throw the whole thing out. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, bro. I don't know how to speak dead languages. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, this word tova, um, which shows up uh, quite a bit and in English, we translate it as abomination. But what I want to say about tova is um, this word had a very special usage hmm. in uh, ancient Jewish context and it didn't really have anything to do with things that were vile or gross or subhuman. If a thing was to get put into the tova bucket, again, leave the word abomination aside for a minute. If something gets tossed into the tova bucket, which a lot of things in Leviticus 18 are getting tossed into it, including the one you read, uh, a male shall not lie with a male as with a woman, uh, for it is tova. When things get put in the, the bucket of tova, what the author of Leviticus is saying is this particular act is essentially amounts to a cultural violation of something that we're trying to do here in Israel that yeah. sets us apart from, in, in their context, the, the Egyptians from which we came and were liberated from and sets us apart from the Canaanites to where we're going into the mm. promised land. And things that were, were tova um, were just ways of saying, here's sort of the boundaries of who we want the people of Israel to be. And if you do things that violate those boundaries, you're committing uh, tova. Mm. And what's interesting is that um, tova didn't necessarily have a moral uh, relevance to it. It didn't necessarily have a, a sense of a, if a thing was tova, then it was ob objectively and inherently and eternally wrong. Sure. Uh, it, it, was, it was constricted to particular time, culture, and context. In fact, in the book, I even mentioned that uh, Moses, one time when asking Pharaoh to let his people go into the wilderness to, uh, to worship their God, uh, to do it outside of the, 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 the you know, perimeter of Egypt, Moses says to Pharaoh, like, let us go worship our God uh, outside of Egypt because our worship of our God is tova to you. Mm. And Moses is not saying our worship of God is vile or gross. Moses is saying our worship of God sort of is... is different enough from your culture that you find it to be uh, offensive in your culture. So let us go do it out here. Mm, yeah. um, and then when you look at other, other things mm. in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that get put into the Tova bucket, what you discover is a lot of these don't have moral implications. They just, mm. they, they don't. Um, mixing two different fabrics uh, is not a moral, right. uh, is not a moral issue. Uh, planting two different types of seeds together is not a moral issue, mm. but it is a violation of cultural boundary. It is a mixing of things that shouldn't be uh, mixed for mm. their culture and their context. So it's really important that we get past this English word abomination and do a little bit more intellectually honest, um, evaluative work, yeah. uh, which a lot of people just don't want to do. And again, that goes back to the fear that we talked about a few minutes ago of it's scary to question our beliefs because that in our minds, that means that questions are standing with God. Yeah. And so it's easier and safer. Really it's safer to just stick with these surface level English readings and say, Nope, the Bible's clear. It says it here. 
Uh, and looking any layers deep just becomes really scary for us. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. I'm taking some notes. Um, I love that the, what you talked about there with the first ring that, um, you know, 3000 years ago is not the highlight of human morality mm-hmm. and uh, that there's been a clear progression. I think, I think it's either Pete ends or Craig Boyd. One of those guys talks about how, you know, especially in the old Testament, it shows an, an arc in terms of understanding God where there is a, a progression yeah. and you know, it's, God not changing, but the way that humans are understanding God is clearly changing. Mm-hmm. So when we look at 3000 years ago, you know, the people who, you know, were, were writing these things down and these laws are being made and these cultural boundaries, like they understood God in a very particular way, yeah. but you know, the human race has progressed since then. It doesn't mean that they were wrong. It just means that everything has kind of moved forward and we're in a different place. And it's unfair, I think, to kind of heap the weight of today of 2019 on an ancient book, like you said, Leviticus, written to perhaps this very small tribe of Levite people mm-hmm. um, and expected to speak volumes in today's um, conversation about LGBTQ inclusion. Yeah, and you said it doesn't mean they're wrong, but I would even push that point a little bit more and say it would be okay to say that they were wrong. Mm. Because the fact of the matter is a lot of the Bible is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> to talk about the bio, to talk about the Earth as being the center of the the world or mm. center of the universe is wrong. Yeah, like it is wrong. The sun um, still, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to to say to suggest that the Earth was created in six days is is wrong. Like yeah. we know we know these things, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't be afraid. Again, <laughs> so much of this goes back to fear, doesn't it? We shouldn't be afraid to, uh, or or at least we should give ourselves permission. To say that uh, people who wrote things in the Bible might have been wrong, yeah. and I, I appreciate what your point is, which is that in their context for for what they were doing, um, maybe they weren't wrong. Um, but it the, might have worked. Yeah, it might have worked for them. Yeah, and it might have made made a whole lot of sense. And even yeah. what I'm saying now, or what we're saying now, a thousand years from now, people are going to look back and say you were wrong. So even right. the categories <laughs> of right and wrong, I find not entirely helpful. That's true. Like, I, that's part of one of the lessons I learned from uh, the creation story, which is don't eat of the tree of not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good yeah. and evil. It's 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 that whole insight into what's right and what's wrong what's good and what's evil, that whole insight, that whole game of judging and assessing. Mm. It's almost as though God's saying, I've given you dominion over everything, but that one area, can you, can you just leave to me <laughs> that one yes. Yes. Uh, aspect <laughs> of what it means to be human where you judge right and wrong? Can you, can you just trust me with that? Because yeah. um, y'all are going to muck it up. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, we muck it up. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of like, Let's not call people right or wrong, um, and also let's not be afraid to look at the uh, some of the Bible, some of the people who wrote the Bible, and be like, now that we have perspective, we can say that that was wrong. Yeah, uh, they were just incorrect. Um, yeah, but anyway, that's even of- even what Jesus did. I mean, you think about like, you know, when Peter, there was a Peter and John, they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. You know, kind of like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal, and Jesus mm-hmm. is like, no. Yeah, it's not really the way, <laughs> not the way that it works. Yeah. I'm going to do yeah. that. Yeah. It's yeah. Really good. All right. So um, let me just real quick do the, the third thing I wanted to say yeah, about please. this, which is, which is kind of just zeroing in on the prohibition itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what the actual prohibition is, um, a male shall not lie with a male as with a woman. 
I think what's interesting to me about this, a uh, couple things, is that um, just the language itself, the, the, the Hebrew language had, has two terms that distinguish between male uh, in general, like just the, the, the gender male versus man, like a singular individual. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes the man could be husband, same word, man, husband. So you just, uh, context tells you which. Uh, and then there's the same thing. There's female just in general, and then there's woman. Hmm. So oftentimes you'll see male and female, these two Hebrew words grouped together or used together. And then you'll see man, woman used together, like individual, specific, particular husband, wife. And so what this, the prohibition is saying is a male, generally speaking, shall not lie with a male, generally speaking, uh, as with a, uh, as with a woman, hmm. so, or, or you could even say wife, um, so, and again, in the context of the passage, which is all about familial, crossing familial boundaries uh, incestually, um, putting wife there would be a, probably a more accurate uh, option as opposed to woman. Uh, but, but the point is, it's like generally, a general male should not lie with a general male as with a specific woman. Now, the only reason why that's interesting to me is that if the author of Leviticus was truly trying to communicate to the Israelite people, um, this intuition or this conviction that uh, Yahweh is against any and all same-sex sex acts in any context, if that was the goal, hmm. then one would maybe expect um, something like a male shall not lie with a male as with a female, like a more general yeah. statement, just a, kind of across the board hmm. uh, instead of this kind of particular, it's almost like there's a particular context in mind, um, like like don't sleep with the man as with you do with your wife because it's just mm. for your wife. Something, something like that. Sure. Um, but also the the lack of any mention of lesbianism, the lack of any mention or prohibition for uh, for the same thing for a female to lie with a female. Mm. Uh, that, that that's not there. So my my, my point is is if, if we're asking this to be really the singular moment in all of the Old Testament, because it is the singular moment. The only other clobber passage is in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a totally different uh, (laughs) situation. And even a lot of non-affirming scholars nowadays are like, okay, we need to stop using Sodom and Gomorrah as anything having to do with anti-gay because it's just not. So really Leviticus, yeah, just take that one off. (laughs) So really Leviticus is the only place in the entire Old Testament by which you could say that the Jewish people were anti-LGBTQ. Um, and if that's the case, um, there, this verse does really, it doesn't provide for that. It really doesn't provide for that. Um, it, it really has a narrow focus. Uh, and in my book, I talk about particular Jewish uh, hermeneutics that argue that if a, uh, a, a general statement is followed by a particular, which as I said, this is a male, not with a male as with a, as a particular, then what only what is particular specified. Hmm. Only what is particular is the thing that's actually being talked about. So only in this particular context, whatever that is, shall a male not lie with the male. Um, but yeah, the lack of anything having to do with women um, really just says to me, like, look, this is not any sort of divine decree uh, <laughs> against any and all same-sex sex acts. Right. If we're asking it to, to do that, we're asking way too much of it. Hmm. Uh, and we are extrapolating way beyond what um, I'm almost certain the original author uh, had in mind, which is we're asking it to do too much um, and we're misusing it in, in some pretty gross ways. Yeah. Sometimes I think the original author would be, you know, if you were 
in this in our world hearing the conversation with this verse that he wrote you're like what in the world <laughs> i don't yeah. think that's yeah. at all what i had in mind <laughs> yeah yeah you know? And, and I try to say in the book, and I think maybe it's in a later chapter, I try to say like, look, what I'm not saying is that we could take a time machine, go back in time, yep. and Moses would be like, oh, cool, two dudes want to shack up and build a life together. I'm down with that. Yep. Like, I'm not arguing that that's the case. Mm. Like, there's nothing, uh, I'm not trying to build a pro-LGBTQ. What I'm trying to establish is that we've been grossly misusing um, a few words and sentences to, to justify discrimination against. And I think that is um, entirely uncool. <laughs> that's right. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. And uh, I think what I, what I really hope our listeners pick up from this is just that, you know, just what you said a few moments ago that, you know, there's always so much more going on beneath the surface of what we read in the English word. And, um, you know, it doesn't- And, very, and, and, and people's lives are at stake. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the 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 numbers are off the charts on how many LGBTQ like young kids are taking their lives over this, yeah. uh, and it's almost always rooted in religious um, religious angst and shunning, right. and so people's lives are at stake. And so if if you are are, are content with a surface level reading and a, and a childish um, interpretation of this, if you're content with that, mm. when real people's lives are at stake. Then, then I seriously question your commitment to being a loving, compassionate human in the world. Like, I want to say, get out of my face with your inhumane, uh, lazy apathy. Like, right. I, I've got no tolerance for your intolerance at that point. Like, right. if you're not willing to dig a little bit deeper, and you may dig deeper and get, get different convictions than I, mm -hmm. okay? Like, people have done that, fine. Um, but good Lord, people's lives are at stake here. So do a little more than just one Google search. Please, Absolutely. Please. And, and think about it through the lens of who Jesus was and how Jesus lived because yeah. Jesus, Jesus didn't treat people that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Hey, before I let you go, um, just on that note, uh, what kind of resources would you recommend for people who uh, maybe not, not only want to look deeper at the clobber passages, but just want to have a kind of a deeper level reading of the Bible? You know, is there any commentaries you've come across, anything that makes this kind of stuff accessible to the average person who maybe doesn't have a theology degree? Um, where, where, what kind of direction would you point people in? You're talking for just the Bible in general? Yeah, just the Bible in general. just want to get a, a better grasp around um, the ancient yeah. text. Yeah. You know, I think, I think there's some great stuff out there right now. Um, I think you mentioned Pete Enns. He's yeah. got a couple books that I think are really helpful for kind of reimagining a, a way to approach the Bible. Um, I think Rob's book, What is the Bible? Yeah, that was good. Uh, gives us... Um, Again, some some fresh uh, ways to think about the book. I think Rachel Held Oven's book, Inspired, mm. um, can really give people, uh, I want to say a different way, but in many ways, this is trying to return back to a time when it wasn't so Greek, it wasn't so Hellenized, it wasn't so platonic of right, wrong, black, white, figure out the answer, um, it's just there's more play there's more give there's yeah. more exploration because the point isn't to get the right answer yeah uh, so i think i think those three authors are, are helping return a lot of us um in the christian world back to uh just a more relaxed playful posture with the book um, mm. yeah that's good and you said earlier you're working on a new book as i'm working on a new book yes okay. I'm, uh, I'm i'm in final edits of the of the manuscript 
that I'll be submitting to my publisher, uh, which is Fortress Press. Okay. It should be coming out in 2020. Um, the book right now is called The Shift, A Survival Guide for Becoming a Progressive Christian. Ooh. And really, it's a distillation of some of my um, best ideas over the last five or six years as I've done ministry and um, a lot of work with people who, like you and I, who have come out of conservative Christian environments. Either we've left it or we've been kicked out of it. And we find ourselves on this path that we still want to connect to something having to do with the heritage and the tradition of Christianity. But we, what we want to do it in a more, what I call a progressive context, which mm -hmm. is open to scientific inquiry, which is affirming of LGBTQ people, which is realizing that men and women are equal, which is sort of naming systemic injustices towards, uh, towards people of different races and ethnicities. So that's kind of what I, what I mean by progressive Christian. And so this is my book saying, yeah, that journey there of leaving one and moving towards the other, that's full of all sorts of fear and confusion and loneliness. So I want to normalize that for people and say, as you're in this process, here are some things that I think could be really helpful wow. um, as it relates to God, as it relates to Jesus, as it relates to the Bible, the church, as it relates to interpersonal relationships with your old family and old friends, um, your own self, your own internal work, uh, as you realize, oh my gosh, I used to think this way. I used to act this way. And you like, get filled with embarrassment and shame. Um, so yeah, so those are the things. Uh, and I think it's a, I'm super stoked for it. I think it's great. I'm excited. I'm going to be the first guy to buy it. That's for sure. All right. All yeah. right. You can put me on the list. <laughs> All right, Colby. Well, thank you so much for uh, dropping by. It was great to talk to you. And uh, we'll have you again here soon sometime. Thanks, buddy. It was right, great. Bud. Thank you. Man, that was so good, wasn't it? So, so good. What I, what I really appreciate about Colby... He's like a down-to-earth guy. Um, like, talk, yeah, even like I talked to him before and after uh, the show, like we did, we did the recording, and he was just so real with me. And um, he also went to a Christian uh, Missionary Alliance church, and he got through that ordination or that licensing process that I had gone through as well. So we were able to talk on that kind of level because we kind of came from a similar background. And a really, really cool, really encouraging guy. Um, he really encouraged me with what we're doing here at the What If Project, and um, I really hope to be able to get out to San Diego sometime in my life uh, to visit his church and maybe serve some communion to LGBTQ people and everyone else as well. So uh, anyway, this was a great episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a fantastic week, and uh, I will see you next time for part two of Glenn's Friends. See you later, guys. Mm -hmm.